Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On today's podcast, will the BBC ever be brought to book for murdering Princess Diana? That's what you'll probably be asking after a week of absolute shellacking for the corporation from Tory MPs and the Conservative press. So what kind of crisis is this for the BBC and can it weather it? Plus, we've got special guest Liz Savile-Roberts, MP for Dwyffer Merioneth and Westminster leader for Plaid Cymru. We'll be talking about the future of Wales and the Union, how the Welsh Government's COVID response compares with England's, and most importantly, why does Britain keep getting no point in Eurovision? And would an independent Welsh entry with Shirley Bassey and Gorky Zygotic Monkey clean up? These important issues will be explored on today's bunker. Let's meet our panel for the day. Returning to the bunker, we have Evening Standard and iPaper columnist, host on Times Radio and recovering Labour spin, Dr. Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. How are hello, you? Hello. Hello. Well, welcome back. Full of beans, which makes me think that you've been enjoying the first week of indoor mixing with up to six people, have you? I have absolutely been loving it. And I'm I'm very, I'm kind of surprised by that because I thought I'd become quite institutionalized in terms <laughs> of becoming like a sort of feral hermit. But who knew? It seems like I actually really enjoy eating and drinking inside in nice places with other human beings. So no, I've had like a great week and I was really lucky because on Monday, on the day of the great unlocking, I got to do an outside broadcast for Times Radio and I got to go and get a sneak preview of the Hockney exhibition and I went to the Vaudeville Theatre and we did this outside broadcast inside this really swanky hotel Browns in Mayfair. So honestly, it was just great. Although I've been eating and drinking so much, I think I've got gout now. <laughs> so it's a outside broadcast. Uh, so I'll, <laughs> Boom. I'll, I've been told. Apparently, we. I have to. In case anybody listening who has gout, I'm not making mark of gout. Some friends of mine have got it. They say, "Why is it always treated as a, as a butt of humour?" It's not. It's a very serious thing. So yes, don't get gout. Um, also joining <laughs> us, we have journalist, editor, politics wonk, and author of Nothing But a Good Time: The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Glam Metal. Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. Welcome to the show. Uh, as a fellow hardline centrist, Justin, what are you making of Labour's terrible polling since Hartlepool? The, the, the latest YouGov has the Tories on an 18% lead. And even if you added Labour and the Lib Dem and the Greens together, they still wouldn't overhaul the government's current poll score. Um, it's not great, is it? I mean, I'm, <laughs> it's um, you know, underplaying that somewhat. Um, I mean, there's no obvious easy answer. And I thought Max Hastings' piece in The Times today was very good, where he was saying that essentially we're still in this position over the last year where all politics has become vaccine politics. Mm. And that doesn't just mean that everyone's preoccupied with the disease, but it just means everyone's preoccupied with themselves. So almost nothing from the external world is cutting through. And the two things which probably are, are people being given wages of free money by the government and a vaccine programme that's worked well. And, you know, I think for Starmer at the moment, you used to think, if he's going to do anything which is going to cut through, it's going to have to be a sort of incredibly aggressive, large-scale public moment of, you know, the variety of, like, Kinnock taking on militants at conference. I think it needs to be something as big as that. Do you think there may also be kind of negative feedback happening, though, that people are are seeing how badly the polls are going? They see the fumbling of the aftermath of the last round of elections, and they think to themselves, they're doing really badly, so I can't support them. To a degree, yeah. And I mean, I think you see this in everything. I mean, success and failure both have their own energy and, you know, they sort of self-perpetuate. But one thing I would temper all this with is I think at the moment, you know, things are so unbelievably febrile that I slightly take issue with all these sort of pieces that say, well, that's it for the next 20 years, you know, demographics, this, this, this. 
And you think, you think of everything we've been through in the last 10 years, you know, from the financial crash to now, things that nobody saw coming and how they have upended politics time and time again. And I do think at the moment, as bleak as things look in the polls, if we have another 7-7, another Grenfell, another wave of the pandemic that we don't get on top of, you know, all of which I don't think are beyond the realms of possibility, things could, again, tip very, very quickly. So I think, you know, things, I think things are sort of up in the air still. We're delighted to be joined today by Liz Savile roberts MP for Dwyffa Marionath and Leader of Plaid Cymru in the House of Commons. Welcome to The Bunker, Liz. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you very much for the invitation. And, and you are at home in beautiful Nevin right now. I'm, I'm. well, I have to correct you there. It's actually more of a Nevin and more of a Nevin mm. and a Nevin have definite views on being separate to each other. <laughs> but uh, it's almost a Nevin and they're equally lovely. Never has a place on earth. And we're going to be talking about trade later, but we've got to start with this Australian deal thing that came up last week, very relevant to Wales. Liz Truss seems to have agreed on a zero tariff deal, which opens the UK to Australian beef, other agricultural products. And it sets a really bad precedent for any future negotiations with America. What What is this going to mean for your constituents? Well, you know, and because your constituency is a large one, isn't it? There are lamb farmers there. Yeah, I have the, um, the second largest constituency in Wales and, and much of it is in the Snowdonia National Park. It's upland grazing. Uh, which is, for farmers, is all livestock, and the greatest part of it is is mountain breeds of sheep, Mm. of whom, in the UK, we don't tend to eat that many of of the small breeds of sheep. We like our leg of lamb and our shoulder of lamb from the larger breeds. So historically, much of these lambs have been sold to the EU, um, particularly to to Spain and Italy and Greece, and those markets now really are in question. Uh, And then, of course... If we are talking about increasing and tariff-free red meat being imported from from New Zealand and Australia, that really is a source of concern for, for farmers here. Now, they see the present situation as being really volatile. Um, on the one hand, we know that um, Argentina, for example, is not selling beef at all, and that's that that's made um, that's increased the markets for for some beef sellers. But in the longer term. We also know that the the the, um, the chief exec of the Australian agricultural company reckons that they could sell ten times the amount of beef that they're presently selling here, mm-hmm. and at the same time, Australia is losing their markets in China. China's proving to be very volatile, so it's just a source of anxiety. It was predictable. I think one of the things you know nobody wants ever to be saying. Well, this is what could actually happen. But the hard reality needs to be brought back to Liz Trust that we had our markets were a couple of hundred miles away. And now you're talking about thousands upon thousands and you're disregarding animal welfare precedents and you're disregarding the environmental consequences of some of the farming practices in Australia as well. I saw you told BBC Politics Wales that uh, what Welsh farmers are waking up to now is that the Prime Minister breaks his promises. And I just thought, join the club. You know, there's a lot of it about, isn't there? There are a number of different people from different different backgrounds who have heard the Prime Minister say wonderful things to him. I remember him saying this to the uh, the DUP a couple of years ago, and then suddenly the um, the vault fast on the part, part of the Prime Minister is really easy, and he leaves people um, staggering in his wake. What's Plaid's stance towards the Australian deal? I mean, obviously, we're at all opposition parties and all people who don't support the Conservative Party are sort of in the same boat right now, which is we can't do much about it. What is Plaid's policy towards this particular trade deal? First of all, any any deeds of these sorts sort should be brought back to Parliament. 
they should also be voted upon. I mean, as what happened, by the way, in, in, in somewhere like Belgium, that for these sorts of trade deals, they should be voted on by the, the constituent parliaments of the nations of the United Kingdom. That would happen with the, with the, with the, in, in, in Belgium, for example. And there should be a veto. There shouldn't be the means for the government to be able to override the interests of the other nations of the UK. And, and I think all the first, the first ministers have spoken out in Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales against these trade deals. And it looks as though even the say that the House of Commons, Westminster itself, will have will be pretty insignificant. So we're setting precedents into the future with a government that is very comfortable with its majority, but that will have immense implications for our farmers here, but not just our farmers, but for a whole range of food producers into future. They're setting processes in, in, in motion that are going to, we're going to have to live with them for, for decades to come, and they're not being held sufficiently to account. Now, will the latest battle of the BBC be more serious and damaging than what we've become used to? Since the Dyson report criticised how Martin Bashir got his interview with the Princess Diana back in 1995, using fake documents and deception, it's been open season on the corporation. Priti Patel has threatened major changes to the BBC in its charter review. The Mail and the Telegraph have been raging, and Boris Johnson, twice fired from newspapers for making up stories, has been lecturing the BBC on media ethics. Aisha, how vitally important is it that the BBC is punished for something that happened 26 years ago, done by people who don't work there anymore? I think it is important that the BBC um, is held accountable for, for this. I mean, what happened? You know, I think you should approach this without fear or favour, whatever your biases are politically and kind of, you know, values wise. If you don't think it's right for people to lie, whether it's in newspapers, you should think that is the same for the BBC. And look, there are, of course, um, a lot of people who are jumping on this um, for ideological reasons. But I think it's quite dangerous for um, people to just sort of be like, hey, because we like the BBC and we don't like the Conservatives, we've got to somehow pretend that this was all right. This was not all right. This was somebody who completely lied and made things up. And then when a whistleblower came forward, they were completely dismissed and sort of pushed out. And it's not, this isn't the first scandal that has, you know, happened to the BBC. Just in the last 10 years, there was Jimmy Savile, there was colluding with the police over Cliff Richard, there was the false accusation of Lord McAlpine on Newsnight. And let's not forget the way women and ethnic minority and older people, particularly older women, have been treated at the BBC with all these cases on the gender pay gap. The problem that the BBC has we all love the, well, a lot of us love the BBC, particularly us on the left, particularly progressives. And if you love the BBC, you should want the BBC to be a good, clean, proper BBC. It should get its authority from the fact that it it is held to a high standard and it should hold itself to a high standard. Also because it gets public money, it's in a very unique position. So I think, you know, the BBC is in grave danger right now. Let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of opponents sort of circling. But I think we do the B for those of us who love the BBC, as we all do, I think we do it a disservice if we sort of try and sweep all of this under the carpet and say it doesn't matter. It does matter. You know, ethics in journalism, whether it's in newspapers, whether it's in tabloids, whether it's in broadsheets, whether it's left wing, right wing, whether it's in broadcast, it does matter. It has been a bit rich, though, hasn't it? Watching newspapers that routinely interview people under false pretenses, have gone through their bins, have hacked their phones, turning around and lecture the BBC about oh, um, ethics. You know, they would have done this and more. Yeah, and you know that course. it's but absolutely, a large part of it is uh, revenge for being scooped, surely. 
Absolutely. But just because like two wrongs don't make it right, just because like bad newspapers have done things, it doesn't mean that the BBC gets a free pass because we don't like those newspapers and what they've done in in the past. Like you've got to try and aim for better standards in public life, whether that's in the media, whether that's in politics, whether that's in the law, in all the big institutions in society. And of course, you're absolutely right. You know, most newspaper editors would have um, killed to get that scoop. I spoke to Andrew um, Morton, who's very close to Diana you know he was her biographer they worked together on the books and he said that look she did want to tell her story he worked very closely with her she was also very um, frightened about the palace finding out Marmaduke Hussey who was the chairman of the BBC at the time his wife was a lady in waiting so they were very worried it would get back to the palace but what Andrew Morton said to me was you know Martin Bashir half scared Diana to death with a lot of his deception. He, she was already having a, a difficult time and she did want to get this stuff out. But, you know, I interviewed him on, on Sunday and he was making the point that, you know, this didn't change the substance of what she said. But it, he did frighten her. He told her that she was under surveillance. I mean, my, his words were he kind of scared her half to death. That isn't right, Andrew. Like, that's not, that we, we, shouldn't come from a tabloid and it shouldn't come from the BBC. And also, the, it, it's all with the BBC. It's the cover up. It, it's always like bad things happen to any organisation, but it's how you deal with it. We have to make sure that the BBC is now not just, you know, completely weakened. And that is going to be the big challenge for the BBC going forward. I mean, what sort of threat do you think it's on? Do you think it is of a, another order from, you know, what we've all been used to of continual complaints from the Conservative backbenchers and the usual newspapers? Do you think it's likely to... Uh, for, for there to be real and substantive changes that will maybe hem in the pot the corporation? Yeah, I think there will. So, you know, charter review to charter renewal will come up soon. I think this will definitely be used to, to clip the wings of the BBC. I think the BBC will be asked to fund more. I also think as well, you know, all eyes are on who's going to be the new chair of Ofcom and the BBC is now regulated by Ofcom. So that's going to be interesting. Of course, you know, the, the names that are in the frame, Ed Vasey's in the frame, but Paul Dacre is also in the frame. And also, you, I think we have to look at this in the wider context of this culture war that's going on. One thing that's really interesting about this Conservative government, they're determined not to squander this huge majority that they have. And as well as doing lots of very, you know, difficult things, I mean, lots of good things with the vaccine rollout and the furlough and all of that stuff. But there's some very, very troubling things which are about the fabric of society, whether it's, you know, public appointments on cultural boards, whether it's telling universities what to do. So I think the BBC will well be in their sight. So I think this is going to be a moment of high peril for the BBC. And I think those of us who want to protect the BBC should um, do so rigorously and robustly. But we should also say to the BBC, look, you've got to get your act together on these kinds of things. Liz, do you, do you sense a kind of greater antipathy to the BBC from MPs in this Parliament, as someone who's been in Parliament for like six years now? OK, and I come at this from a number of different backgrounds, because I, I used to be a local newspaper journalist as well. And, and of mm. course, being with Plaid Cymru, being a Plaid Cymru MP, we have a certain take on the BBC and the way that it presents different political views. We don't always feel that, that the views that we, that we think should be put out there are given a fair amount of time. A, what does worry me, and I, I, I agree entirely with what Aisha was saying about journalistic standards, but nonetheless there's this sense of uh, this government weaponising nostalgia, as they do particularly effectively, towards the BBC at a time, of course, we're facing the, the, the question over the licence fee. 
And more and more for somebody from, if, if you like, outside the main parties of the United Kingdom, we see the BBC acting as the state's loud hailer more and more. And the other thing I'd like to bring to the conversation as well, of course, this, this is a government with its large majority and the means it have of, of, of bringing about what it wants to do, it, avoiding being held to account. Another particularly worrying area, I think, is is the way that they the government is proposing making it more difficult to hold themselves or any government to account in the mm. courts in future. And I think, again, there's a sort of a, an avoiding accountability or a neutering of being held to account with the checks and balances that the UK rightly does celebrate. Um, we have a government here that's looking to balance the balances more in their favour, if you like, um, mm. to be held less to account. And I think that for all of us, that is something we, we need to be very aware of where the checks and balances actually are held um, because there's a likelihood that they're changing as we, as, as, as we look at it happening. This is looking a great many steps ahead into the future, but it's, it, in, a, in an independent Wales such as Plaid would like to see, is, is, there, a, is there a WBC? Is Channel Padua Cymru uh, likely to expand? I mean, is there, is, there, is, there, is there a Plaid media policy? Very much so. I mean, at the moment, of, for people who speak Welsh, you will have a, a news service that is particularly geared towards you. Editorially, you can see it reflecting the English language news service in Wales, but nonetheless, it, is, it does make some separate editorial decisions. When it comes to Welsh news in English, you'll get the five minutes at the end of the day and occasionally we don't get the same coverage or the same attention to what's happening in Wales as what happened in Scotland. And this matters. It doesn't just matter for Plaid Cymru and our agenda. It actually matters for, if you're thinking that the Senedd in Wales deals with the major issues of, of health, of education, of planning, of developing the economy, but to come back to health... Interestingly, of course, in the last year, people have really seen how health does operate in a different way in Wales. Our media doesn't cover that particularly effectively. You know, there'll be whole swathes geographically of the country where you can't get a story in at all. But I said the last year has been interesting in raising people's awareness. Actually, things do happen in a different way. And, um, you know, there's a question there for how the BBC plays to catch up with that and whether it can afford to catch up with that as well, which is um, you know, something else we were pushing for. Justin. Diana is a, is a strange and totemic figure, isn't she? I mean, in parts of the country, she's almost a goddess. In other parts of the country, in other parts of society, she's a, a thing that happens in the newspapers that, that they don't read. The kind of maudlin tone of the reports over this issue of the past week have been really incredible. The Mail was saying that Bashir robbed Harry and William of their precious final years with their mother. I mean, it's not like she was dying of a disease. It, 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 she was, you know, her, her life was ended in many respects by the behaviour of those self-same newspapers. Are we ever going to get over this Diana fixation? Or is, do you think it's going to become entrenched as the years go by? I mean, it's very odd, isn't it? I mean, I was thinking this at the weekend, how baffling much of this story must be to anybody who's under the age of 30. You know, I think it would be like me at an equivalent age reading about, you know, something that had gone down between Harold Wilson and Kenneth Walsenholm. Or, um, <laughs> and I mean, there's, I think to, to Aisha's point, I think there's, I think she's right that, you know, there is, a general issue that you have to be morally consistent here about, you know, journalistic standards and ethics. But I think one of the problems at the moment with the public debate is that because this stuff is being so weaponized by the government, there's no sense that anybody is making those arguments in good faith. But I think you know, when you have a political movement which is filled with these people who, you know, have, say, you know, left jobs under a bit of a cloud and been rehired almost immediately giving these lectures about how other organisations should be behaving in that regard, 
it makes it very hard for to take those arguments in good faith or seriously. And I think that's when it becomes, you know, an incredibly sort of toxic discussion. And, you know, and I think to, to Liz's point as well, one other thing that's interesting that huge majority of the government have at the moment is they're incredibly sort of brittle and still like you don't get any sense, like given the huge majority and the leeway and the power they have, they constantly seem to be in this kind of reactive crouch position where everything has to be attacked and, you know, nothing can be engaged with in a constructive way. Yeah. It's quite hard to sort of, you know, bringing together the, the, the media and the political response. It's quite hard to recognize, to reconcile agony of Diana's kids, Paul Harry and Paul William, with the other, you know, perpetual story that appears every day, which is, you know, new age madman Harry and his uh, and his unsuitable wife. Oh, I wonder why the papers are calling her unsuitable. What could it possibly be? The, these two stories are now in the papers every single day, and they're almost, they're not exactly compatible, are they? No, not at all. And I think, you know, one of the great ironies in this being, you can exactly imagine the tone of voice nowadays that those same papers would be taking about, you know, a woman who held the hand of AIDS patients, complained about, you know, her treatment by her husband and championed charity work in the developing world. You, know, you can imagine were she coming out with that stuff nowadays, what the tone of the criticism and the argument would be. And Woke virtue signalling. Of course, yeah. And, you know, and I think there's... As I say, there clearly is something went very wrong around that interview being procured in the first place. But I think, you know, the idea that these arguments are being made in good faith or with any hope of a constructive outcome is seems like something of a stretch to me. Aisha, just to wrap it up, I mean, the kind of def- the defining response to politics and nowadays just seems to be a sense of powerlessness that these things are just going on above us and our votes don't matter and they're going to happen whether we whether we like it or not do you think there's anything that listeners can do to sort of make you know not directly affect the way the bbc charter review is going to go but to directly or even indirectly affect the attitude towards a free media in this country or not well i'm not let's not over dramatize it We, we do have a free media and we'll continue to have a free media but to have you know, free of undue influence, shall we say? I mean, I, I completely empathise with that feeling of being powerless. I think that's a, a real psychological collective frustration that so many people have at the moment. But this is the this is the problem. I mean, this is a much bigger question, really, about about politics, Andrew. I mean, if Boris Johnson had not got that huge majority then I think we would be in a very different position. And I think Boris Johnson's ambitions are actually more ambitious than Thatcher's in some ways. You know, I think he does want a kind of quite strong cultural revolution. And and, and I think the problem that we all have is that the left and progressives are so busy fighting each other that the right just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And, you know, newspapers and the media... Believe it or not, I work in a lot of newsrooms. I never go into conferences where people ha ha so go ha ha. What kind of right wing agenda can we peddle today? Most journalists that work in newsrooms are probably pretty left of centre, to be honest. But they are reflecting what a lot of their readers are thinking. Same with with viewers. It's a really difficult situation. What I do have an anxiety about, just picking up on something that Liz said. So I've been tweeting a lot about the BBC and I've been talking about it a lot as a presenter and as a commentator. And I've been inundated with people from all wings of politics slagging off the BBC. So the lots of 
pro-independence people in Scotland messaging me saying the BBC is awful, it's biased because it doesn't support our cause. I've had like, you know, people who want a progressive alliance saying the BBC doesn't support us. And in a way, the BBC is doing its job correctly if everybody politically sort of hates it. That is kind of where the BBC should be. My anxiety is what Liz pointed out, that with the government being so strong and with charter renewal coming up and with the licence fee, very much the question of should it move away from a a licence fee public um, model, my anxiety is the BBC will be cowed when it comes to its news reporting and its political reporting. And that cannot be allowed to happen. That is out of everything that the BBC does, in my estimation, good, fair, straight, political reporting is its absolute raison d'etre. And that is the thing when you go to America and you go to other countries, that is what they admire about the BBC the most. Liz Savile-Roberts has been MP for Dwyffa Merioneth since 2015, when she became Plaid Cymru's first female MP. She's led the party in the Commons since 2017. She's also the Plaid spokesperson for Home Affairs, Justice, Business and Equality, and she's on the new cross-party UK Trade and Business Commission, which focuses on post-Brexit trade, so she's got plenty on her plate. Liz, how do you juggle all these different briefs? Oh, you'd have to ask somebody else. I'd have to praise myself, but I know the truth, in all honesty. It's never boring. It's never, ever boring. The Trade and Business Commission, particularly, because I'm chairing the session this week on small and medium-sized enterprises, SMEs, which is particularly mm. relevant to Wales because, you know, they, they form more than... They form the backbone and the skeleton of our economy. Um, and it's really interesting looking at what they're experiencing at, at, at present, some of the businesses that I speak to, because the obvious comparison with larger businesses is that larger businesses have the capacity to be able to spare up staff time um, and function to deal with the new regulations. And it's the smaller businesses who just can't begin to do that. I mean, and some of the stories, the people I've been dealing with locally, say shellfish exporters, mussel producers, and they just have no market suddenly overnight. Really, really interesting, not obviously to hear how it affects people in the here and now, but also looking to to hear from them what they would expect the government to be able to do to support them now. Because I think it's one thing to be able to, to describe the situation that we're in. It is something else to try and, I mean, and again, as a politician, particularly as an opposition politician, you know, this describing and being negative is one thing, but finding some way through this and then holding the government to account, sometimes in ways that they don't particularly want to be because it's not their idea or they don't really want to do something. That is something that I think is really, really important in our, in our role now. The excuse of, of teething problems for Brexit is, is has one very, very thin. We're now, what is it, four or five months into the end of the transition period of a proper Brexit is, is, is here. Are you able yet to say, to kind of sketch out what those areas might be that the government is going to have to take on whether it wants to or not? Because as you say, your your initial work with SMEs, the kind of businesses that are at the sharp end, particularly import exports of highly perishable goods. Is it possible for you to kind of give a picture of these other things that, you know, that they're going to have to deal with, whether they like it or not, the government? Well, I think just to come back to the the, the, the shellfish issue, I think what they found is that everything that they exported had to be inspected. So there's ways for the government to confine an, eco- an economies of scale, say a hub for a number of exports to go out at the same time together, then that would, it would reduce the costs on the individual companies. I mean, at, at present, we've got companies where it's just not worth them even thinking about exporting. And some quite unexpected companies as well. Obviously, everything that, that is, this is food produce 
um, the, the level of inspection there is really high. There is a question, do you actually need qualified vets for all of these as well? But then some quite unexpected ones. I've got somebody in, in, in the constituency who exports mirrors for indoor riding schools for horse riding, and they just can't export them to Ireland anymore. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to why that's why that's the case. Interestingly, the government really does not like to be held to account on any of these problems. It's, it's always There's always some reason as to why they can't address it rather than than beginning. And I, and I think that may be where the government's weakness will begin to play out. As you mentioned earlier on, the, the vaccine bounce has been helpful to every incumbent, I think, in the recent elections. But if we, if we just come back to the Tories as well, I think what happens possibly, we're going to have the um, Chesham and Amersham by-election fairly mm. soon. And I know some of the Tories in those traditional south of England constituencies are not feeling all that comfortable. And it will come back to questions like this about what support is actually being done to these businesses and not the big political identity gestures, if you like. It's going to come back to some some things that are more uncomfortable for the Tories in future. Obviously, Plaid is the party of Welsh independence. Labour had as you, had a pretty good showing in the Senate elections Clyde's ex-leader, Leanne Wood, lost her seat. The, the takeaway for a lot of people was that incumbency, as you say, worked uh, in, in the last round of elections. Clyde say more or less static at 20% votes. Where, where do you see the independence debate now, post the, the last round of elections? It was terrible to lose Leanne. I'll, just, I'll be quite upfront about that. I mean, it was, you know, because she's been, she has, and I hope will remain to be one of our, one of our real stars. I think what's interesting with the independence debate is that although... This year, with the the you well, hopefully it's the unique context of COVID this year. Let's hope it's only for the, the last eighteen months and that we're moving out of it. And that has certainly given you know pe- people wanted the comfort and the certainty. And the incumbency factor with vaccine was absolutely undeniable. What's really interesting as well is how the Labour Party in Wales has moved to use the language of independence and greater powers, they will use a term called confederization, which I await their definition of exactly what that means. I would think that it's fair to say that we have, that Plaid Cymru has pushed Welsh Labour into positions where it wouldn't have previously been comfortable. And also within Welsh Labour, they're very aware now that if they actually want a, a radical progressive agenda, the powers that have been given to them through the Senedd, although they've increased since 1999, they're not enough to do what they want to do. If Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales, is talking about a UBI pilot, a universal basic income pilot, he'll find very quickly that without welfare powers and possibly additional taxation powers, he can only do this pretty superficially. So there's Mm. going to be a hard question about, if you like, the boring constitutional stuff actually manifests itself in what you can do and what you can really do. Say, for instance, we're going to be debating, I think, tomorrow, or there'll be a question about um, rape cases and uh, charges being brought through through to court and to conviction. Again, if we had justice devolved into Wales, we could manage these sexual offences in a different way, such as Scotland and Northern Ireland do. We have this unique position of being a, a legislature, but we're not a jurisdiction. We just can't do the job very effectively with the tools that we have at present. And Labour see it. And I think also, again, to come back to the vaccine difference, people have been able to see that actually we were able to do things different in Wales. And our experience on the ground and going you know, from door to door now, people really appreciated the degree that the vaccine programme was more effective in Wales. 
how did Wales do it differently? Because even, as you say, it's not, you know, what happens in Wales is not covered enormously well in the British media. We've done a few specials on Welsh COVID stuff on the podcast, and yet we still sort of don't feel like we're on top of it. What, is, is it possible to say what the difference was? I think there was a general, within, within the communities themselves, people em, embraced the, the programmes of vaccination with enthusiasm. People were proud to have been vaccinated, when you have people on social media and Facebook and so forth talking about anti-vax, at the same time you had people coming in and saying, no, I've had my first vaccination, we've had our second vaccination. People put those up on, 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 on social media. Just to describe um, Nevin here, the, the mm. GP surgeries here ra- went to the, the local health board, and this is a rural area, we're 35, 40 miles away from the nearest district hospital. They said, look, we can roll out trays of Pfizer. And you remember Pfizer has to be kept at a colder yeah. temperature. So you, you have to roll it out quickly if you're going to start using it. And they did it. And they got the community in to manage the, 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 the traffic directions and to manage people within the surgery. And there was such local pride of being able to do this to make sure that older people were safe, first of all, that everybody who was involved with care and in the care homes was safe. And then we managed to roll it down, again, with the enthusiasm of these local GPs, we rolled it down into the younger years earlier here because they wanted to do it. And I think I'm describing a situation that I know well locally because I was one of the traffic directors on this. You know, oh, right. <laughs> but um, there has been, we've been able to change our focus and roll out the vaccines across the health boards of Wales relatively, really very swiftly with a specific focus on that. And mm. as I said, it, that has, people are proud of that and, 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 and proud to have been part of that as well. So, I mean, and, and I'll say this to Mark Drakeford, I would, and I have congratulated him over this because, mm. you know, it's, it, it's been government, not just the government of people talking about stuff and the things that their supporters want to hear, but getting down to the nitty gritty of actually doing the things that make citizens' lives better. Um, yeah. And people appreciate that. The SNP in Scotland won a fourth consecutive term in office in the uh, last round of elections. There's clearly a, there's a, a clear appetite for independence in Scotland. Probably less so in Wales, possibly less so. You, you've got 20% of the vote. The change in votes is effectively about 5% of the vote switched from Tory to Labour. Uh, and you kind of stayed where you are. Do, do, do you think you know, is there a path to independence? Is there, and is there an appetite at the moment? Or politically, do you kind of have to wait till Scotland is done, as it were? There will be news coming out of Northern Ireland and there'll be news coming out of Scotland over the next two, three years or so. And we will always be looking at our own situation in relation to those. I mean, Wales, of course, historically is a completely different setup to Scotland. We, we didn't have the institutions that Scotland possessed over over the centuries and the way you know, we didn't have the same educational institutions. As I mentioned, we don't have a jurisdiction. We don't have the same structures. What has happened over the last, if you like, since 2014, since the, the, the first Scottish referendum, has been a, a growing awareness of what greater powers would mean and a discussion about what inter- independence means. There has been the growth of this a movement called Yes Cymru, extraordinarily successful, reaching out across political boundaries, across political lines, and particularly amongst younger people. There is a lively discussion of what can we do? Why can't we do this? Why are we being held to account from somebody in Westminster? And actually, with vaccines, yes, we can actually do it better. It's a growing debate. It's a different position Mm. to Scotland. It's obviously an extremely different position to Northern Ireland. But we're not in the place that we were six years ago, and if the momentum continues, then I think that there will be 
the demand for independence or something approaching independence is not a, is a momentum that's going to continue in the same way. And finally, just just before we move on, um, obviously, for, for a lot of English people on, on the progressive side, uh, as, as well as anywhere else, the, the, the notion of, you know, of the union breaking up is saddening. I mean, we would, you know, we want to be part of bigger things. That's why we were against Brexit. It's almost like a kind of the Brexit of the British Isles. What what's your what would be your message to English people listening to this? You think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want Scotland to leave. I don't want Wales to leave. Well, the question... What is it about leaving that is the problem? And is it really leaving or is it a, a growing in parity of esteem? Because at present, I mean, England is the anomaly in not having its own parliament. But nonetheless, it is the MPs of England who decide how much money that Scotland and Wales get to all effects and purposes. So we, we have this anomaly in that respect. I and mean, at the same time, actually, this government is going to reduce the number of members of parliament in Wales from 40 to 32. So actually, our representation in Westminster is even more weighted against us, if you like. Yeah. And for me, you see, I'm, fr- I'm from South East London originally. I, I went to college in, in, in Aberystwyth and I've been backwards and forwards, but s- settled here very, yeah. very fortunately. And to me, one of the great things that I've seen with the independence movement in Wales is a, is a growing confidence in people of being able to take control of their own, of their own destiny and not being told by somebody else how to do. But the flip side of that is also not complaining and expecting somebody else to do things for you. So that the parity of esteem, it doesn't need to be... It's not a matter of being against England. It's not a matter of putting up the barriers. It's a matter of being able to build here more effectively than we can pre- presently do. And that surely in the end, and obviously for all politics, what we've seen in the Brexit experience, all politics needs to be global. But then within that global politics, this particular little nation would have a better result for itself and hold itself better in the world if we could be speaking more for ourselves as well. And there's models of this happening in other places. It hasn't got to be, the union hasn't got to be like this. we, We can be so much better if we are more empowered across the nations of the United Kingdom. Your car, your toaster and your washing machine all depend on them. And now there's a global shortage of them, computer chips and semiconductors. Global producers are warning that the shortage could last for over a year, with companies like Ford claiming it's already cut their profit forecasts by over $2 billion. How do we get from chips with everything to chips with nothing? Alex T. Williams is an economist and a researcher analyst for Employ America. I'm Alex Williams. I am a research analyst at Employ America, which is a U.S.-based think tank studying the macro economy and working to produce tighter labor markets. So I had a New York Times article about the shortage uh, of semiconductors sort of across the global economy. Semiconductors and electronic products generally have big, complicated supply chains. There are a lot of issues and unbalances in the sort of global supply chain and global value chain right now. For semiconductors, this has created an issue where there are substantial shortages of specific end products to consumers. The range of products that use chips nowadays is mammoth, and so a slowdown in the availability of those chips has the potential to have significant knock-on effects. There's a global shortage in these things for a couple of reasons. As globalization and just-in-time production advanced, it became possible for every factory at every level who produced the same product to more or less compete globally with every other one. And this sounds good and sounds efficient, but the problem is if you have two factories making the same chip, then one of them competes the other one out of business. 
But then the one that's still in business gets hit with a typhoon or a factory fire, as we saw with Renaissance in Japan. There's often no second factory ready to step in to produce those chips. So either they have to repair the one that went offline or pull a whole second factory into being. It's really showing that any sort of major global disruption or even specific local disruptions that as you know, climate change continues, it's going to become more important to understand how the supply chain is structured and be prepared to intervene. And maintaining fragile supply lines is not a wise choice going forward. These supply chains are very complicated, and semiconductors dealt fairly discreetly in automobiles, in consumer products, in certain medical products. I've heard that lead times for freezers are starting to become very, very crazy. So it shows up all across the economy without you know, presenting a single obvious point of failure from the consumer's perspective. Part of the reason we aren't talking about this enough is supply chains are fairly distant from the consumer imagination. You just go to the store and the things are on the shelves, or you just click purchase and it shows up on your doorstep. There's sort of an assumption that, oh, you know, everyone out in the economy, the free hand of the market, all of these upstream suppliers are going to sort these things out for themselves. And the problem is they're a little bit like, you know, an audio producer or an offensive lineman in that if they're doing their job well, no one notices. But the second they stop doing their job well, everyone can't do their own job and also doesn't really notice the fact that they weren't thinking about how the sound engineer was working before. Finally, why Italy? Should they have won it? It's the Monday after Eurovision and Britain is indulging in the traditional pastime of moaning about why we came last. James Newman scored the famous null point on Saturday, only the second time the UK has scored nothing after Gemini in 2003. And Britain has finished in the bottom half of the leaderboard in the last nine consecutive contests. Can we turn this around one day? Should we even try? Aisha, did you watch it? What did you think? Well, I, I was actually out because obviously I just go out all the time now. Yeah, <laughs> so I basically, never indoors, I, yeah. I came in and I, I just saw the um, end when Italy was declared the winner and then they performed. And I couldn't work out if I was A, really drunk or B, not drunk enough. I was like, what is this? Like, what is this? I It, it was just like hilarious. Um, But I did wonder, maybe I felt so sorry for the British guy. But the thing is... What we don't understand in this country is that the Eurovision Song Contest is not about a song which is like a commercial song, which might sound good. It is about a performance. It's about theatre. It's about a show. It's about camp. It's all of that. And I just think the penny hasn't dropped um, for us. I did wonder maybe, did we just not have enough flags? Would that have helped basically in terms of our quest? But it, it just, just I thought, how can we be so good at music? We, I, we, would, we just put the Brit Awards on, which I went to, which is just amazing. And then how can we be so crap at Eurovision? One of the standing theories of this is we are now the no mates of Europe. We've annoyed everybody. So we, not only do we not get uh, evaluated on the song, but we don't get evaluated on the country either. In fact, we are a, we're a tarnished brand and we're never going to get votes because of because of Brexit. What, what, what do you think? But then I remember back in the day when like Terry Wogan was doing the commentary and we were still hated. This is way before Brexit and we were still hated then, although he used to make jokes about it was all about the fishing quotas and things like that. So I don't think it's just because of Brexit. I think we just don't seem to understand the, the spirit of Eurovision. Well, there was a great analysis on Twitter, where else, by the, the writer Kit Lovelace uh, and a musicologist as well. 
who basically worked out what does make a Eurovision song work, even down to the kind of beats per minute and the fact that, paradoxically, a minor key tends to win. People, people want bangers in minor key, you know, so sad bangers seems to work, which surprised me. A sad banger, I, that's how so, I feel right now. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. But, uh, you know, l- watching it, I thought a good 70% of these songs sound like amazing Pet Shop Boys B-sides yes. that we've never properly heard before. And it's like, we can make this stuff. We do make this stuff. Why don't we make it for Eurovision? Do we do we just look down our noses on it? Do we consider ourselves too snooty yes. for it? I think that's right. I think we think we're, we're, we're better than all that and we're really not. But I think there's a solution because I interviewed this um, songwriter who'd written many songs for the Eurovision Song Contest on my show and he said he would write, he emailed, I jokingly said, oh, I'll have to enter it next year. And he actually emailed the office and he said, I'm prepared to write a song for Aisha and work with her. She's serious about putting herself forward for next year. And I was thinking, I think this country has suffered enough. I don't know. Aisha is very, and now from representing Ryan Aisha, <laughs> Justin Quirk, you're a metal guy. You must have been thrilled to see that Maniskin, or however you pronounce it, the, uh, the Eurovision metal won. Oh, they were, they were just wonderful, I thought. It was, um, and I thought particularly not just the performance, the whole thing in the round was the, uh, the front man at the end with no shirt on, just following <laughs> rock and roll never dies. It was like the... It was like the anti that dreadful speech that Alex Turner gave at the NME Awards. Oh yeah, where you wanted the floor to swallow up in front of him. I'm like, no, mate, this is how you should have done it. Um, and I thought they were fantastic, like massive seventies glam rock action, female bassist, you know, doing the sort of Susie Quattro thing. It was, uh, it was superb. And yet they were basically the darkness. We invented the darkness. We never put anything like the darkness into Eurovision. Why can't we get it right? Well, maybe this was our mistake. I mean, I mean, I think there's something in that point you're saying about, you know, we sort of take take ourselves a bit too seriously. I don't know if we have the right sort of grasp of irony, but I've got to say, having never really had much time for Eurovision before, in this sort of post-Brexit climate, I always I found it all sort of rather weirdly moving in a strange way. You know, all these sort of incredible, it's like the little stings they were putting in between with like, you know, 70s futurist housing and Peter Mondrian artworks and things and, you know, very fast intercity bullet trains. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is this is like the Europe, you know, the Europe I always loved. And I also thought there's that thing where it showed up, that sort of stupid reductive argument, you know, the EU has kind of ironed out all our differences and it's just one homogenous superstate. And the whole evening just reminded me of, you know, those old episodes of Euro Trash when they sort of went <laughs> on the continent yeah. and found this sort of incredibly distinct localized form of complete lunacy in every country they went to and i thought you know the the russian performance with that incredible woman that was sort of dressed like lee bowery meets missy elliott and then, yeah and she's like darlicking around the stage oh, in a traditional russian doll outfit it's astonishing she was incredible and then, and then you know that and then i think it was the icelandic one where they all dressed like some strange sort of christian youth group but playing these sort of circular synths that all joined into one kind of giant mechanoid synth they were my favorite yeah I, they, they were like the icelandic hot chip and i thought they should have won it there was a heavy yeah. sort of thomas bangalter vibe to it. <laughs> it really reminded you of you know it's a very very big continent and you you know, these distinct sort of local differences are all still there. They haven't been flattened out. And, you know, long long may that con- continue to be the case. Liz, did, did you watch it? Are you a Eurovision person as a good European? I'm feeling a bit left out. There's been so much sort of critical analysis of it. Yes, <laughs> I, sort of, I, wa- I watched it and I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed Russia. I enjoyed... Iceland. I really enjoyed Lordi, I have to admit, as well. Yeah, Lordi from the, the previous winners are fantastic, yes. I suppose one thing that's changed in Eurovision is that the, 
what used to be that the quiet part is now said out loud. It's very much about inclusivity, diversity, LGBTQ plus all over the place, really foregrounded. And um, our Eurovision editor, Jelena, uh, producer, wrote me a very quick brief here about how 2007 was a watershed moment for Serbia. The first year it entered the Serbia alone and it won. Maria Suric's Mulitver, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is still a radio hit in Serbia now, 14 years later, and it broadened discussions of LGBTQ plus issues in a socially conservative state. So this is a Eurovision actually doing a good thing, the thing we, we sort of want our pop culture to do. It, it really is an, it's interesting how it's such an institution to watch. I mean, obviously, what, some of the commentary we had here in, in Wales was, uh, well, if we could put in competitors, obviously it would be a completely different situation, and we would do, you know, we, and we would do fantastically. I mean, we have the people who could do this. We've got, we've got them on call. I mean, and just to say, but I mean, forgive me for saying that, just to take the obvious. Actually, it's the reason. Well, why can't we actually? Because we've got a, a national football team going into the Euros as well. Why can't we do this? You know, it would be well, um, this- fantastic. This is my question to you. I mean, there's a Welsh, as, as you correctly say, there's a Welsh national football team. Why can't Wales enter as an independent country? My question to you, Liz, is who would you, who would the entry be? Bonnie oh, Tyler's Hanukkah. Oh, now that is a question. Um, I think super furry animals, possibly fronted by Martin Sheen, would be absolutely fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gruff from the Super Furry Animals has got a fantastic album out this weekend. I think he, he actually would fit the bill on that. Uh, Aisha, speaking for the entirety of Scotland, what would an independent <laughs> Scotland's entry be? Obviously, it would be you. Obviously, it would be me. Oh, I think you've got to kick it back old school. I think let's like, we like the Proclaimers again, because <laughs> who doesn't love the Proclaimers? And it would be like, I would walk 500 miles just to rejoin the EU. That's what the kind of general sort of gist of it would be. Too political for that for them. You get banned from that. Justin, what does Brit? What does the UK, whatever's left of it, need to do to win Eurovision again? Is it going to be good? Sending Lawrence Fox and a banjo? Well, other than <laughs> the obvious of not just putting up a big lad in a leather coat and Ron Atkinson's <laughs> jewellery to throw his being around, <laughs> I'm going to go with a bold move here, Andrew. I think taking inspiration from two packs beyond the grave performance at Coachella, I want to see a holographic Terry Wogan coming back from beyond the grave next year to host in that the technology's there. It seems like an open goal. I think, you know, we're missing, missing the opportunity. So a two pack style, three dimensional Terry Wogan taking to the stage will clinch it for us. Glowing in the dark, like Obi Wogan Kenobi. There we go. Well, we've come to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for our panel's escape routes from politics. What are the TV, films, books, music, whatever, that are taking their minds off politics this week? Aisha, how about you? So I've started to watch this really, it was recommended to me by Ian Dale, who absolutely loves this. And he was like, you'll really enjoy it. It's called Outlander. And it's this big sort of silly, epic thing about this woman that gets trapped in time and goes back to uh, Scotland. And it's all about, um, she falls in love with this person and they're battling the redcoats. And I have to say, I'm normally quite a unionist and it's made me really (laughs) pro-independence. I actually think if the SNP want to get a majority, they should just make everybody watch Outlander and everybody will want to like go independent, basically. It's terrible. I think I'm becoming an independent supporter now watching this, which is weird. Liz, how about you? You've got any disgraceful anti-English propaganda you'd like to recommend, like Aisha just did? Well, I know what I'm going to do because it stopped raining for the first time in three days. I'm going to clean out the chicken shed. 
It's not in the least glamorous, but it's a real—it's <laughs> a real change from doing doing politics. But if Aisha wants some suggestions, I've got a whole host of books for her to read. <laughs> <laughs> but Liz, that's very um, chicken sheds are very cool now because when Meghan and Harry did their Oprah "Were You Silenced or Were You Silenced?" interview, they at one point were in a—they a ch- were in like a chicken thing. So it's very—that's very on brand at the moment. Uh, well, we've only Chicken. got room for six chickens, so I'm not sure how many interviews we could do out of it. <laughs> chickens, they're so hot right now. Justin Quirk, what about you? Uh, the escape route is the absolutely wonderful Gods of Snooker on the mm. iPlayer, which is the wow. three-part retelling of the sort of rise and fall of the lunatic golden age of snooker from about late late 70s to late 80s. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. Even if you have no interest in the sport, it is the most brilliant portrait of what a strange, odd place the country was at that time and how in these sort of towering figures of like Steve Davis and Alex Higgins, this sort of cultural rift that split the country was sort of played out in front of millions of viewers. That sort of Cavaliers v Roundheads idea, but it's absolutely brilliant. Wonderful soundtrack, amazing archive. I cannot recommend it enough. It is absolutely incredible, isn't it? It's like six raging bulls all in the one series. It's just, and you know, these odd things like Steve Davis comes out of it as this really unusually thoughtful presence where he essentially says, look, we were a analogue of Thatcherism and there were people like me who towed the line and cleaned up and did very well. And then there were these people like Jimmy White and Alex Higgins who were kind of unmanageable and got left behind. But it's, um, it's really, it's so, so brilliant. It is. It absolutely is. My Escape Roots is an album that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time called Too Slow to Disco, Yacht Soul, where the classics of soul are reinterpreted in the yacht rock style. Tavares, the Pointer Sisters, Peebo Bryce and Chaka Khan are on here doing the classics of soul in a super yacht style. Honestly, it is the most relaxing thing you can possibly listen to. Quincy Jones taking it to the streets. Billy Paul doing let him in. Someone's knocking at the door. Someone's ringing the bell. It's just, it, it, it will take all of the pain and misery out. And I'm imagining, <laughs> Liz, I'm imagining myself sitting outside the Thai Hock pub in Nevin with a pint and this on and just feeling all the woes of the world ooze away. Yeah, Stuart of Teacock does like his reggae too. And you can hear it from miles away. <laughs> I'm setting off right now for a pint in the teacock and that is the end of this week's bunker thank you to Aisha Hazarika future Eurovision contestant <laughs> thank you very much Neil Poir I think I'm, I've got a vision into the future <laughs> thank you to Justin Quirk King of Rock thank you for having us Andrew and thank you to our fantastic special guest Liz Savile Roberts oh was that thank you in Welsh yes <laughs> okay great thank you too my Welsh is awful I'm worse than Amanda Holden. We'll be back tomorrow (laughs) with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You can get the podcast early, get our splendid merchandise, and access to our live Zooms. And, of course, back us again on Resolute on the show. And here are some now. And best wishes from me to Alex Rich, Kieran and Kate Young. It's a big thanks from me to Helen Hannah, Kevin and Nick Hall. And finally, best wishes from me to Lynette Ralph, Elmer Gonsalves and John. Just John. We'll see you next time. Shumai Paub, Rudwin Gamrai Ghetto, Roy the Bunker, Gan Andrew Harrison, Aisha Hazarika, Justin Quirk, Ahevid Kada Yelena Sofranievich, Ajega Archbold.
Alex Reese, Wanaitha Golagi, Kenny Dickinson, Wanaith Gantama, Ruitha Bunker, Gan Podmasters. Nostar.